All right, if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of a pastoral confession, a little personal confession. And as I'm doing this, before you judge me, don't judge me, because I'm going to ask you to do the same thing a little bit later this service. I'm going to ask for your own personal confession. So this past week, Samantha and I, we celebrated our 0210 day. You might say, well, what's the 0210 day? Well, February 10th, uh, 16 years ago, a long time ago, Samantha and I, we were in kindergarten. And uh, I, I gave her one of those little candy purple hearts that they sell this time of the year. It was a purple one, and it said, be mine. And she said, is this a question? And I said, yes. And she said, yes. So here we are in kindergarten with this little purple heart. I'm kidding, we weren't in kindergarten. And so uh, that was February 10th, many years ago. And so each year, it's so fun to, to celebrate this time of year, just to look back at God's faithfulness in our relationship as we started out in a dating relationship, and then we got married. And, and all these years later, we've got all these kids and all this great stuff to that God has done. And it's so fun to look back and think about where we've come from and all that God has done through us. You know, the reality is, Samantha and I, we got married young. We got married right out of high school. Uh, we had kids really young. And th- that's not for everybody. I'm, I'm just not something that works for everybody. But this is where we were. And I remember as we got married, there were people who, who doubted us. People who said, you know what? It'll never work. You're too young. People who said, you know, you have missed the perfect will of God. And I'm not sure how, like, that, those kind of doubters and that, those, those haters, I'm not sure how that's supposed to affect you. But I remember when people would say that about us, my pride would well up. And I would say, man, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove all you haters wrong. And so, so you fast forward a couple of years. Um, I had a uh, 25 years old at this point, And I had a mentor that I would meet with once or twice a week. And, and we'd get together early in the morning in his office. And uh, there was a morning and he said, Kevin, I, I want you to know something. And he said, he said I was asked to um, apply to be the pastor of an international church in Seoul, Korea. And he said, he said, they asked me to put a resume together. He said, he said, Kevin, if you were to put a resume together for what would make you qualified to serve the kingdom of God, what would be on your resume? And I started to think, in fact, all those doubters, all those people that said, Samantha and I weren't going to make it. At this point, we'd been married for seven, eight years. We had, I don't know, three kids, four kids. They all kind of run in the middle. I just know we have five now. We had, we had some kids back then. We, uh, we owned our own home. We, uh, I worked at Madison House, and we were having great success and saw hundreds of kids come to know Jesus through the ministry at Madison House. Um, I was an elder at our church, and, and, and I kind of looked at all these things, and I said, look at all that I've done. This makes me qualified to serve the kingdom of God. Jack, if I, or mentor, I'm not going to mention his name, if I were to build my resume as to why I, I deserve the right to serve the kingdom of God, I would list all these things. And uh, I remember my mentor said, he said, you know, Kevin, they've asked me to write a resume. And they've asked me to give a, a copy of one of my sermons. They want me to record myself preaching and send this to them. And he said, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I'm like, why not? Your resume is, is, is amazing. I mean, you've been married to the same woman for 40 years. You have, you have kids that are grown and they're all loving Jesus, all serving Jesus. You've been in ministry forever. You've planted three, four, five churches. I mean, why wouldn't you put this together? And he said... I don't remember the exact words. He said, those are things that I've done, but that's not who, what I want to be known as. And, and I, don't remember, I don't remember the exact words, but basically what he said, the basis of it was, 
I want to be known as a guy who desires to know Jesus. As a guy who desires to know the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. He said, this is what I want to be known for. You ever that time when you're having a conversation with somebody and they ask you the question first and you have to answer first and then they answer, then you feel really dumb because they had a really good answer and your answer seems so foolish and petty and selfish and all those other things. That was totally the case with me. I'm like, you should have answered first because then I would have had a really spiritual answer for why I deserve to serve the kingdom of God. Today, Philippians chapter 3 is a, is a great text. And, and, and we've titled this message, The Joy of Knowing Christ. The Joy of Knowing Jesus. Because there is a joy that comes from knowing Jesus. There is a freedom that comes from knowing Jesus. I mean, Paul, as we've been in the book of Philippians for the past couple of weeks, Paul's been, Paul's been building this case to the Philippians. He's been emphasizing the fact that a Christian's life should be filled with joy. That that us as Christians, even if we have adversity in our lives, we are to be filled with joy. And then then Paul transitioned and started talking about this this gospel-centered intentionality. This this gospel-centered humility. Where we as Christians, we should be moved and, and motivated more so, instead of serving ourselves, instead of pleasing ourselves, we should be moved and motivated by a desire to serve others. By a desire to consider others more significant than ourselves. This is the way we're supposed to live as Christians. And then Paul, he, he, he stated this case to the Philippians. And then he said, here's Jesus. Jesus is not only the perfect example of that gospel-centered humility. But Jesus also becomes a source of power for how you and I can live this way. And then Paul, last week we saw, he, he pointed to Timothy and Epaphroditus and said, here are two ordinary, regular, everyday guys. I want you to see their life, to see what this gospel-centered humility looks like in a normal, ordinary guy. And so chapter 3 comes in, and Paul's going to deal with people who are going to say something. They're going to say, if you want to be right with God, then you've got to have a certain resume. You've, you've got to live a certain way. You've got you've to do certain things. You've got to follow certain rules. And he's, they're saying, if you're going to be right with God, your life has to look a very specific way. And this attitude, when you have this attitude that, that you've done the right things, this leads to confidence and pride. And saying, God, I have a resume for you. That this makes me worthy of your love. This makes me worthy of your grace. And what Paul is going to do in Philippians chapter 3 is going to say, it's not about a resume. He's going to say there is a joy, there is a peace and a freedom that, that, that comes from crumpling up our resume for something greater. For knowing Jesus. So, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer. God, just want to thank you for who you are today. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. God, we want to hear your word today. We don't want to hear a pastor's opinion. We want to hear, God, you speak to us. And God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray, God, that we would be, be honest with, with some of our pride, with some of our uh, uh, confidence in ourselves God, we'd be able to look at that and say, God, I, I'm submitting that to you today because there is nothing greater than the joy of knowing Jesus Christ is our Savior and having confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in him. 
So God, I pray that you would just help us to lean in today, to hear your word and to respond. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So Paul begins this letter, this chapter out in verse 3, verse 1, and it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, finally. And some of you are thinking, finally, he's going to end this book. Nope. He's like a good pastor. A good pastor says, in conclusion, and then they go on for another, you know, Paul's case, he's going to go on for another two chapters of, of his book. And Paul, what he's trying to do, though, is when he says, finally, he's trying to connect what he's about to say to the same theme he's already been talking about. He's going to connect what he's about to say to this gospel-centered humility and to this, this idea of having joy despite our circumstances. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, as we, as we live this out, as we have joy in our life, as we live out this gospel-centered humility, he's saying, rejoice in the Lord because there is a joy that comes when we start to live our lives to serve other people instead of serving ourselves. There's a joy. Don't miss this. There is a joy that comes when we begin to serve other people instead of serving ourselves. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. See, Paul says, I'm going to write the same things to you. These same things are what he's been talking about, about rejoicing in the midst of affliction, about having this gospel-centered humility. And what Paul's saying is, this is safe for you. This is good for you, that I'm going to tell you again about these things. And I'm going to tell you, because what happens is it's so easy for us to forget. I mean, Paul, Paul's already talked about some of the, uh, some of the hindrances to us living this out. Remember in chapter 2, Paul talked about how grumbling and complaining about how this becomes an attitude that we have. And we start grumbling and complaining about the way things go. We grumble and complain about leaders. We grumble and complain because things don't go the way that we want them to. And, and Paul's already said when we grumble and complain, it impedes and disrupts the work of God both in our life and in the world. So Paul said this is already, we know this to be a distraction, something that, 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 that will be a problem for us living this out. But Paul knows there's going to be other temptations. Other temptations that will tempt us to take our eyes off of Jesus. Other temptations that will f- get us to focus on our own self-centeredness, to undermine our faith, and to rob us of the joy that we should experience when we follow Jesus. Specifically, Paul's about to bring up this issue. It's an issue where there's something that had repeatedly plagued the early church, where there's a group of people in the church who emphasized works, who emphasized religion, who emphasized this idea that in order for you to be right with God, you have to be righteous. You've got to obey certain rules. You've got to do this and not do that. You've got to, uh, you know, uh, that. The common joke is to say, uh, don't, sh- don't smoke, don't chew, don't girl, go with girls that do. You ever heard that before? And there's these rules, and these people are going to say, hey, if you're going to be right with God, sure, it's a little bit about Jesus, and it's also about you during doing certain things. And this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, this is safe for you. It's good for you that we continually come back to an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, because it is so easy for us to forget Even though we get it, we get it, it's about grace, we always tend to revert back to being about the flesh and about what we do. So whether you are a new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for decades, we are all prone to turn back to religion and pride and self-righteousness. And this is why we continually need to come back 
and hear an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. So Paul points to the very specific problem in the early church. He says in verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, what would happen in Paul's day is Paul was a missionary. He was a church planner. So he would go into a region and he would preach the gospel. He would preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He'd say, well, what is, what is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us could live. Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us could live. Jesus then went and suffered and died on the cross in our place. He took our punishment that we deserved. We deserved death. And as Jesus was on the cross, he took our death upon himself. He took his, our punishment upon himself that we deserved. And then after he died, Jesus was buried and he rose from the grave, defeating Satan and sin and death and hell. And so the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is so simple. It's that you and I, we have not lived an acceptable life in God's sight. But Jesus... Jesus lived an acceptable life in God's sight in our place. And although we don't deserve God's love, we don't deserve God's grace, Jesus gives it to us as a gift. See, there's nothing in there that we do to earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn a place in heaven. It is only found through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's why Jesus is the Savior, not ourselves. And so what would happen is Paul would go into a place and he'd preach the gospel and people would respond to the gospel. They'd say, you know what? I want Jesus in my life and I'm going to surrender my life to him. I'm going to get saved. And so there'd be a group of believers and Paul would gather this group of believers together in something called a church. And in the church, he said, here's your purpose for the church. It is to know Christ and to make Christ known. To know Christ means that you're going to go and and learn uh, and, and learn more and grow deeper in love with Jesus. But then you also have this mission of taking the message of the gospel, the message about Jesus and salvation through him alone. You have this responsibility to take that message throughout the entire world. So there are more and more believers throughout the entire world. So this is what Paul would do. He would travel around. He'd plant the church. People would get saved. And then he'd go to another area and leave that church and go to another area and do the same thing. But as soon as Paul would leave... As soon as Paul would leave, there'd be another group of people who would move in right after him. See, there was, there was uh, a number of, of many Jews who were willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. These were Jews that believed, yeah, sure, Jesus is Messiah. But they also believed that, sure, you had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to follow the Jewish law. You also had to follow the rules of the Jewish religion, which included circumcision, which probably isn't a good topic to talk on Valentine's Day. And so, and so they would say, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're really going to be a Christian, you've got to do these things as well as believe in Jesus. So for you to be right with God, you've got to follow these rules. And Paul fought against this idea in every church that he planted. He, he wrote letters fighting against this very idea. He's saying this is wrong. See, anytime you put Jesus plus anything, that makes it religion. And God is not about religion. God is about Christ. 
And so religion is us making ourselves clean before God. Religion is us saying, look, God, I have this resume. I have this resume right here. And this is what makes me acceptable to you. Sure, I believe in Jesus, but I have these things. And so, God, I'm worthy of your love. I I deserve your love. God, you owe me your love because of this. And it goes against what the gospel is all about. See, what happens is anytime you add Jesus to anything, to a list of do's or don'ts, that's going to lead to pride. It's going to lead to us standing in pride saying, I deserve God's approval. God owes me salvation. And so you can picture it, you can picture it like a scale. I think we've got a picture of a scale here. And, and on the one side, you've got good. On the other side, you've got bad. And, and you, you look at your scale and you say, look at all the good that I've done. My good outweighs the bad, so therefore I'm a good person and I deserve God's love. Or we look at our scale and say, you know, my good outweighs that person and that person and that person. And since my good outweighs those people, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I deserve God's love because I'm better than those people. And this is what happens in religion. This is what happens when we are working on our scale, when we're working on our resume. No longer are you serving people in humility. No longer are you loving people with that gospel-centered humility because now you're stuck in pride, thinking I'm better than this person and that person. That person really is not worthy of God's love at all. And what Paul is saying is saying those who would teach this, those that would teach us, he has very strong language. He said in verse 2, he says, look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, when you see the word dog, most of you are going to think about Fido you have at home. You know, the little, little dog that, you know, you've trained and he's housebroken and, and, and he eats off your table, off the crumbs of the floor and sleeps at the foot of your bed. And that's not the kind of dog that they had in the Bible days. In, in Paul's day, dogs were wild. They were dirty. They were defiled. They were mean. They'd run free. All over the place, they'd eat dead animals. They'd go to the bathroom anywhere they wanted to go. They would chase people. They would attack. And Paul, what Paul's doing is he's saying, these people who would teach you you have to follow these rules, they're just like dogs. They're disgusting. They're worthless. I mean, the only thing that Paul could have done to call them anything worse would be call them a cat. You had to know that was coming, right? You had to know that was coming. He's saying these people who, who teach that you have to observe the law, you have to follow the rules. He said they, those have no significance to God. Those people are just mutilating the flesh. Circumcision doesn't mean anything to God anymore. That's just mutilating the flesh. These people are worthless in God's sight. And he says, he says for those who would trust Jesus alone for their salvation, he says, verse 3, we are the circumcision. Those who trust Jesus alone for their salvation. He says, we, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true believers, the true people who are right with God, the true people who will find themselves in heaven when they die are the people who put confidence in Jesus alone. They're, they're, they worship by the Spirit of God, not by works. Not by saying, God, I've earned it. Not by saying, God, I've done all these things, so therefore, God, you owe me your love. I deserve it. The ones who are going to be right with God, who are the true circumcision, who are the true made right with him, 
are those who put confidence in Jesus Christ alone. Instead of those who put the confidence in the flesh of these, these dogs that are coming after Paul into these churches. And to emphasize this matter, to emphasize this matter Paul says in verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence, I have more. See, those people who, who put their confidence in their works, in their resume, under their scale, those people, they, Paul would say, I have more confidence than they do about why I deserve God's, why I have earned God's favor. Uh, if God judged on that scale of good and bad, Paul says, my scale is way better than theirs, 10 times better. Paul's resume was stronger than anybody else's. And what Paul does next is he's going to describe those advantages, describe his resume. There's two types of, of categories on Paul's resume, two types of advantages. Some advantages were given to him by birth. Some of them were, were advantages that he chose. And as he's going to list his resume, I want you to see this. First, there's the advantages uh, that, that were given to him by birth. He says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This meant that, that Paul was not a convert to uh, Judaism later in life, but he was an insider from birth. He grew up in the church. He says, verse 5, he says, I was of the people of Israel. It means racially, I mean, his parents were Israelites. So it's not like he's, he's a quarter Israelite. It's not like he's a half, three-quarter. No, he is a full-bled Israelite. He grew up in the whole thing, in the church. He's a complete insider. He says, I came from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, this was the only tribe of Israel who remained faithful to King David's descendants as they reigned in Jerusalem. So they were at the core of spirituality in Israel. And again, Paul points to this and say, man, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, not only was I an Israelite, but I was the right kind of Israelite. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says in verse 5, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Sure, Paul was born in Tarsus, uh, but he was raised in the language and in the culture of his religious and racial heritage. He received the formal education in Jerusalem at the, at the, at the Jewish schools and was, was well-versed in his religion. These are all things that were, were given to him by birth. But Paul also had these advantages that he gained that he chose. He says in verse 5, he says, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, they were the strictest elite denomination throughout Israel. They were among the most disciplined people. Not only did they have God's word that they would follow, the commandments from the Old Testament, but they also uh, obeyed the oral traditions that were passed down from, from the, the, the pastors and, and the people that came before them. So they had the list of rules that the Bible said. They also had the list of oral traditions that said, hey, I want you to do this and this and this. And they followed all these things very strictly as a Pharisee. He says in verse 6, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul's saying, I orchestrated a terrorist campaign against Christians, similar to what we might see with radical Islam, seeking to have Christians arrested and killed to stop the spreading of Christianity. I was a persecutor of Christians. And finally, in verse 6, he says, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. This statement is amazing because the law, the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, 
Okay? It contains some 613 commandments, 613 rules to follow, 613 do this and don't do this. And Paul says, I'm blameless on all 613 accounts. That is quite a statement for him to make. And Paul says, Paul's saying, by looking at his resume, he's saying, man, if God is really going to give approval on a resume, I've got the best resume out of everybody. Nobody can top my resume. If God judges on a scale, my scale outweighs everybody's scale. And out of everybody, I have the most pride in what I've done in the flesh. This is what he says in verse 7. There's a big but. He says, but, but, whatever gain I had, means whatever I could put on my resume, whatever I could put on the good side of my scale, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says it again in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All those things that Paul took pride in, all those things that people could look at Paul and say, Paul, you're so righteous. Paul, you're so good. Paul, you are so worthy. All those things Paul has taken from the good side of his scale and moved them to the bad side of the scale. And now Paul says, there's only one thing on my good side that makes me worthy, and that's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. The only way that the scale works in our favor is if Jesus is the only thing on our good side. Because all of our good works are worthless. The only thing we can take confidence in is not our flesh, not our resume, not what we've accomplished, not what we've done. It's in Jesus. We say, well, it's Jesus plus circumcision. It doesn't work. Jesus plus baptism. It doesn't work. Jesus plus uh, uh, going to church. Jesus plus volunteering. Jesus plus recycling and saving the earth. And Paul would say, that doesn't work. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And that will ruin everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything for us as a Christian. Paul says in verse 8, he says, For I have suffered the loss of all things. Because you see, when Paul put his faith in Jesus, when he said, I'm not going to build my resume anymore, I'm going to put my confidence in Jesus alone, he, he lost his status. He lost friendships. He lost his wealth. He lost the position that he had uh, 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 gotten in life. And on top of that, he's going to, to embrace a life of hardship and abuse because of following Jesus. And Paul's saying, all those things that I had gained, I now count as loss. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. Paul says, all those former things, all those things that make me feel like I'm worthy, all those things that I can stand before God and say, God, you owe me. He said, I count them as rubbish. The word for rubbish is actually a word called scubala. And it's actually kind of a crude term. It could be, uh, could be translated as, to mean refuse. It could be excrement. Really, in layman's term, it means crap. It means crap. He said, all those things are like crap compared to knowing Jesus. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as crap in order that I might gain Christ. He says in verse 9, and I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with a self-righteousness of my own making. I'm done with putting confidence in myself, in my own uh, uh, good works, and what I can accomplish. And now, even though Paul is going to be determined for a lifelong pursuit of Jesus, his, his, his salvation is not coming through his own righteousness and his own faithfulness. He has a righteousness that now comes from the faithfulness of Jesus. A righteousness that does not depend on human works. But rather now it's a righteousness that depends on faith. Faith that requires that we abandon all those things that we would take confidence in. All those things that we would say, God, you owe me. God, I've earned it. And instead, now you rely on the faithful work of Jesus. Remember, Paul had this unmatchable credentials. None of us could come close to accomplishing what Paul had accomplished. Yet through a single encounter with Jesus, all of it was considered lost to Paul for the sake of knowing who Jesus was, of being able to have a confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for him on the cross. So let me just turn the attention now from Paul and turn it on to us. Because most of us, I don't know if anybody in here is going to be tempted to, to boast in the same way that Paul boasted. I don't think any of us are going to say, oh, I'm going to boast because of my Jewish heritage or because of my ancient rights of race. But what is it that you boast in? What is it that you brag about? What is it that you take pride in, that you puff out your chest a little bit? What is it in your mind that makes you a good person? That makes you maybe someone, maybe better than somebody else? This is where we're supposed to be honest. Because, you know, we can come into church and we can give the Sunday school answers and say, oh, there's nothing. But the reality is, we have this flesh inside of us that desires to, to come back to the same idea. So what is it that you begin to take pride in to say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm worthy of God's love. Or maybe, maybe I'm not worthy, but maybe I'm better than these people. So therefore, I should be able to have God's favor. It's probably not your Jewish heritage. But chances are we boast and we value things that are completely insignificant to God. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe, maybe God has blessed you financially and you have a nice house. You've got a couple of toys. You, you can take care of your family. And maybe that gives you like this confidence. Like you are something because you have some money in your bank. Maybe it's your education. Maybe, maybe you've got the diploma on the wall. You've got the training. And, and somehow that gives you a little bit of a boost that you are worthy of something. Maybe, maybe it's your relational success. Maybe you've been married to the same woman for, for forever. You still like each other. You still go out to dinner on Valentine's Day. You even, you even go for uh, supersize on Valentine's Day. Like, let's go all out, right? Maybe, maybe you look at your family and say, you know, we don't have any brokenness in our family. There's no weird relationships because uh, of relational stress. And so you look at that and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm worth something because we can keep our family together unlike other people. We can do this sort of thing. Maybe, maybe you take pride in your kids. You know, like, well, you know, I've got the best second grade soccer player in the entire school. Maybe in the entire, this kid's going to make me money someday. Or maybe you look at your kids and say, my kids are successful adults, successful in their career. And somehow that means I was good uh, at parenting. That makes me worth something. And maybe God would say, I, I, I love you because of that. 
Maybe, maybe for you, maybe you've accomplished more than your parents. Maybe you learned from their mistakes. Maybe you've gone a different route and you have bettered yourself. And somehow that makes you worthy. Maybe it's your sobriety. You know, you've kicked that habit while so many people are still struggle. And so maybe that makes you a little bit better, a little bit more acceptable. Maybe you help people. Maybe you have this like desire just to encourage people and help them. And, and, and you help them in their, their situation and help them in life. And, and somehow you feel like if I help people, then of course God's going to return the favor to me. And he's going to give me grace because I've helped people. Maybe it's your church background. Maybe your parents raised you in the church. You learned all the Sunday school lessons and you've been in church now for years and you, you know, you give to the offering and you serve in the church and, and somehow this makes you righteous. You think by going to church, God will forgive me for all the things I've done and that'll make me right with God. Maybe, this is really a weird one, maybe it's your theology. You know, like you see faith and you see the church and you say the world just right and everybody else around you, man, they're wrong. And since you see everything just perfectly, since you see everything right, that that makes you better than everybody else. And that makes you a little bit more acceptable to God. See, what happens is even though we know it's all about grace, our human tendency is to revert back to the flesh, to build this resume, to look at all we've accomplished and say, this is why God loves me. This is why I have the reason to stand proud. So we achieve, and we look at what we've accomplished from a worldly standpoint, and somehow this makes us more valuable, more lovable, like God owes us something. And we start to look at others who haven't done what we've accomplished, who hasn't accomplished what we've done, and we begin to, instead of having this this gospel-centered humility of wanting to serve them, we instead look down on them and thinking, man, I bet you wish you had what I had, because I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. This is a superiority complex. But honestly, many of us are going to struggle on that regard. But honestly, not everybody is going to fall into that same category. Or they say, look at my resume, God. Of course you owe me salvation. There's going to be some people who are going to fall on the complete opposite side of that category. People who say, man, when I look at my life, I've screwed everything up. I've got nothing good to show for my life. Man, I've, I've failed. So I've, I've been rejected by society. There's no way that God could love me or save me after all the times I've screwed up. Look at my life. I've got a long history of failed relationships, broken marriages, constantly running, uh, ruining my chances at love. Got no career. Can't keep a job. I got no money, no house. I'm just hoping to have enough money to buy dinner this week. I then... We throw in our own struggles with with alcohol and drugs and and pornography, problems with the law. Maybe you're a felon. And then you step into the church and you see all these supposedly nice people who look good and smile. And you think, you know, I'm too dirty. Man, I'm too broken. There's no way that God could ever love me, that God could ever forgive me, that God could ever save me. So instead of having the superiority complex, you have this inferiority complex where there's no way that God could really love you and forgive you, desire you. So I asked you to have one of these pieces of paper. And what I want you to do on this piece of paper is I want you to say, what is that thing on your resume? 
What is that thing that gives you such confidence that you are prideful and you boast in and say, this is what makes me worthy. This is what makes me feel proud, like, like I'm valuable, like, like God would love me. Or maybe for you, what's your inferiority complex? What's that one thing that makes you feel like, yeah, I'm not worthy. There's no way God could truly forgive me because of this thing. What is it that you would put on your resume? Write that down. Just write that down for me. And just hold on to that for a minute. Because here's the thing. Here's what Paul's going to say. He's saying, I don't care if your resume is stacked with all sorts of good stuff. Paul's going to say, I don't care if your resume is stamped with failure in bright, big red letters. Paul's saying, I don't care if your scale is tilted to the good side or if your scale is tilted to the bad side. Paul says, we take no confidence in the flesh. We take no confidence in how good or bad we are. All of that is crap. It's crap. What matters is not our works, but what matters is whether or not we will trust in Jesus as our Savior. If we will take confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. So that that day when we die and we stand before God and God's at the gates of heaven and he's saying, why should I let you in? We're not saying let me in because of this. We're saying let me in because of what Jesus has done. And at the gates of heaven, we take that paper and we crumple it up and say, I'm not going to be known by this. I'm going to be known because of what Jesus has done. Because it's the only thing that any of us can take confidence in. Listen, I don't care how good you are. I don't care how bad you are. You are made right because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that is what we build our identity off of. Not what will we accomplish. What happens is when we grasp this, that our worldly successes are all crap, that the only thing that matters is whether or not we put our faith and trust in Jesus, is there becomes this amazing diversity in the body of Christ where you've got the rich and the poor coming to Jesus the same way and we become one. You've got the good and the bad coming to Jesus in the same way by putting their faith in Jesus and we become one. You've got male and female. You've got, you've got skinny and not so skinny. You've got black and white and brown. And we're all equal. We all come to God in the same way. With empty hands and open heart. We put our faith in Jesus. And that is what we put our confidence in. Not in ourselves. So listen, it doesn't matter what is on your resume or what isn't on your resume. Have you put your faith in Jesus? You belong right here. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you put your confidence in Jesus, you belong right here with us at Restoration Church. Welcome to the family. Because this is what unifies us. This is what brings us together. Not all that other stuff. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Look back to our text, the last two verses. These verses show us the heart of Paul probably more than anything else. Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, I do all these things. I count my resume as crap so that I can know Jesus, so that I may know him. This is a present tense. As Paul saying, I want to continue to know him. See, Paul, he first encountered Jesus 30 years ago on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus on that road. 
And all these years later, his desire is still to know Jesus more, to know Jesus deeper. I think about Samantha and I, all these years, we were just kids when we got married. But the one thing that's awesome is the longer we've been together, the more we desire to know each other deeper, to be more intimate, to know each other better. And Paul is saying this is what love does. Love makes us want to know each other more and more and deeper and deeper. And that's what Paul's describing. All these years, Jesus, I still want to know you more and more. Paul says he wants to know Jesus deeper. And then he says not only to know him, but also the power of his resurrection. See, according to Paul, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that works in us to accomplish a number of things. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that makes us holy. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that makes us a fit place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that helps us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love for us. It's the same power that that gives us strength to endure endless trials. Same power that allows us to live lives characterized by joy. Paul's saying that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that enables us to live like that. See, Paul's looking for power. And you hear people say, I want the power of God and I want to, you know, be powerful. And, and Paul's saying, I'm not looking for God's power so I can be powerful and I can do mighty works. Paul's saying, I'm looking for the power of God so that my life might reflect the will of God, that I might live out this gospel-centered humility. He says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. And then he says in verse 10, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, these things go hand in hand, like peanut butter and jelly, like, like Valentine's Day and chocolate. They just go hand in hand. The spiritual reality is that suffering will come to every true Christian. This isn't a sign of God's absence in our life. Rather, it's proof uh, that God's grace is at work in us. It's a sacred intimacy. We experience his power, and we're going to deal with suffering. They go hand in hand, and it's his power that enables us to endure that suffering. Paul says, here's my end goal. Here's the end goal, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to be absolutely clear. This world is not the end. He's longing for that future day, for that final resurrection with a new heaven and a new earth. Paul doesn't want to be distracted. He doesn't want to be satisfied with what this world has to offer. He wants to keep his eyes upward towards the goal of that glorious future of Christ's return that awaits Christians. There's no doubt For any of us in here today, if we knew that today would be the final day of our lives, there's no doubt that we would want to have said we made Jesus the ultimate reason of our life, the ultimate purpose. If we knew that today was the day, we'd want to make Jesus the ultimate purpose. But since we don't know when we're going to die, as it is today, there is a time right now that we can pray with Paul. We can pray like Paul. That we may know him and the power of his resurrection. That we may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death by any means possible. 
we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Have you prayed that prayer? Can you pray that prayer? Will you pray that prayer today? Would you close your eyes and bow your head with me for a moment? Our tendency as humans is to revert back to the flesh. And how fitting is it for us to be reminded of God's great love for us? That it's not about a resume. It's not about what we accomplish in the flesh. It's about Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And Paul said, it is good for us. It is safe for us to come back to Jesus time and time and time again to be reminded of his sacrifice for us, of his grace, reminding us that he is a good father and that we are loved by him. And that's what what we are to be known by. So would you pray for a heart like Paul? Would you pray for a heart like Paul that we would give up our resume? That we would give up that confidence that we hold on to. Whatever it is that we wrote on that paper. That we would say, this is rubbish. This is all crap. It doesn't matter to God. I want to be known instead by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. I want to be known as a man and a woman who desires to know God deeper. To know the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings. To meet him face to face. I wish that was our prayer today. That we would say, God, help me to be that kind of man. Help me to be that kind of woman. This morning, we're going to respond to God's word through communion. Jesus instituted communion on the night that he was betrayed. He said, this broken bread represents my broken body for you on the cross. He said, this this cup, this juice represents a new covenant between God and people through the shedding of Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sin. Paul describes communion as an act of worship, a way that we remember Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. And so Paul instructs us before we come and observe communion, we are to uh, examine our lives. We're to confess our sin. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that in just a moment. Here at Restoration Church, we don't take the elements together. The goal is that we can spend some time individually between us and the Lord. And then when we're ready, we can come forward and partake of the elements. But before you do that, before you come forward to partake of the elements, remember that paper I asked you to write on earlier. Remember that paper that I asked you to write down that thing that you built your resume around. I asked you to write down whatever it is that puts pride in your heart that makes you feel either worthy or unworthy of God's love. As you come forward to partake of that communion, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made to make you right with God, would you bring that paper and just crumple it up? Just crumple it up and put it in the bowl up here as a, as a sign, as a symbol of saying, you know what? The only thing that matters is Jesus and what he did on the cross. And I'm giving this up. Whatever it is that makes me feel special, that makes me feel pride, that makes me feel worthy, whatever it is that makes me feel unloving, unlovable, unworthy. I'm crumpling this up. I'm giving this away. And I'm going to put my confidence in what Jesus accomplished about what this cup and what this bread represents, his sacrifice for me. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that 
our eternity is not based on what we do or what we don't do, but it's based on what you've done. God, I pray that you help us just to look inside, look inside ourselves, that, God, we would have that willingness to confess, confess the areas that we struggle with pride because, God, we do. We get it, it's about grace, but we come back to this idea that we're worthy. God, I pray that you would help us just to be, be honest with that and write that down and just confess that and leave that up here at the altar. God, I pray for those who struggle and say, man, I don't have that resume. I just have these holes of ways that I'm, I'm unworthy. And God, I pray the same thing, that we'd write that down and say, you know what? This doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And I'm going to bring that paper up and I'm going to crumple it up and I'm going to leave it up here in this basket so I can partake of communion to be reminded the only thing I take confidence in is what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. God, I pray for those in here today who have placed their faith in you, who are putting their confidence in the cross. God, I pray that they'd feel welcomed. They'd feel a part of the family because this is what draws us together. This is what unifies us. This is what gives us purpose. Jesus on the cross. God, love you and praise you. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.